Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good morning and welcome to the Heritage Foundation. My name is David Burton. I am Senior Fellow in Economic Policy here at the Foundation. Uh, before I introduce our speaker today, I'd like to bring to your attention uh, the next event in our speaker series. The speaker series is called Free Markets, the Ethical Economic Choice. The next, uh, our next speaker will be the Reverend Robert Stricko, who is president of the Acton Institute and he will speak on the moral case for a free economy. Uh, that will be next Monday, December 10th at 11 o'clock here in this auditorium. And then we will resume the series in January after the holidays. Our speaker today is John Allison. His topic is the philosophical fight for the future of America. He brings practical, academic, and think tank experience to our discussion today and is a nationally known proponent for economic freedom. He is an executive in residence at the Wake Forest School of Businesses and uh, teaches finance, among other things. Uh, he is a member of the Cato Institute's Board of Directors. Mr. Allison was president and CEO of the Cato Institute from October of 2012 to April of 2015. Prior to joining the Cato Institute, he was chairman and CEO of BB&T Corporation, uh, the 10th largest financial services holding company headquartered in the United States. During his tenure as CEO from 1989 to 2008, BB&T grew from $4.5 billion to $152 billion in assets, which is a rather remarkable growth spurt. Um, he was recognized by the Harvard Business Review as one of the top 100 most successful CEOs in the world over the last decade. Uh, he's received the Corning Award for Distinguished Leadership, been inducted into the North Carolina Business Hall of Fame, and received a Lifetime Achievement Award from the American Banker. He is the author of two books, The Financial Crisis and the Free Market Cure, Why Pure Capitalism is the World Economy's Only Hope in 2014. And the second, The Leadership Crisis and the Free Market Cure, why the future of business depends on the return to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness in 2012. Uh, <clears throat> in addition to being uh, a professor at uh, Wake Forest University, he also serves on the board of visitors at the business schools at uh, Wake Forest, Duke, and the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. He is a Phi Beta Kappa graduate of the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, received his master's degree in management from Duke University, and is a graduate of the Stonier Graduate School of Banking. He's the recipient of six honorary doctorates. We will have time for audience questions uh, after Mr. Allison's presentation, and please join me in welcoming John Allison. Thanks, David. And uh, good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. I always enjoy having the opportunity to present at organizations which uh, defend liberty and, and free societies. Um, the title of my talk today is A Philosophic Fight for the Future of America. It's actually a presentation I've been making on university campuses, which has been an interesting experience, which as you'll see, it's not exactly aligned with what's happening uh, at our universities. Um, before I uh, get into my speech. So I, I, some of you know this, but I just want to give everybody a, a quick reminder. As, as David said, I was uh, president and CEO of the Cato Institute. And this is the elevator speech I use at, at Cato, which is kind of a context for my presentation. Uh, Cato is the world's leading libertarian think tank. 
Our mission is to create a free and prosperous society based on the principles of individual liberty, free markets, limited government, and peace. We really do believe in limited government. We think the government ought to stay out of your pocket, but we also think it ought to stay out of your bedroom. We think government has a very important but very specific and limited role. The purpose of government is to protect individual rights. It's to keep me from using for force or fraud, fraud to take what you've earned and to keep you from using force or fraud to take what I've earned. So government is in the, in the protection of individual rights business. We think because of that, government has three legitimate functions. National defense to protect us from bad guys overseas, police to protect us from bad guys in our neighborhood, and a court system so when you and I have a legitimate dispute, we can resolve it without the resort to violence. We think it's very important that government be limited because government has a unique and very dangerous authorization. Government can initiate the use of force. Walmart can beg you to buy their products. They can offer you special deals. They can entice you, but they can't make you. The government can make you. They can take your property. They can put you in jail. They can kill you. In fact, throughout history, governments have killed hundreds of millions of people. If force is not necessary, government is not necessary. And just commonsensically, human relationships, which are voluntary, produce better outcomes. So the next time you hear a proposal for a law, even if you kind of like the outcome, ask yourself, would you take a gun and make somebody that disagrees with this law obey it? If you wouldn't, you really should, shouldn't support the law because force is a very dangerous entity. All right, in that context, now we talk about the philosophic fight for the future of America, and I would argue philosophic fight for the future of Western civilization. Um, this is a very important fight. I think it will have a profound impact on the quality of all of our lives and our children and grandchildren's lives. Um, it's a fight that's very evident in universities today. On one side of the fight are those of us what I'll call the classical liberal tradition. Those of us that believe the founding fathers got it right, that life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for each individual is a fundamental foundation for a successful and, uh, and prospering society. On the other side of the status of all kinds, um, there are plenty of uh, right-wing status. Right-wing status tend to want to control people's personal lives. Uh, Left-wing stages traditionally wanted to control the economic side of your life, but now they also want to control uh, your personal lives. The most visible, and I would argue by far the most dangerous set of stages today, are the so-called progressives. Uh, progressivism is an old movement. It goes back over 100 years, but it's really raised its ugly head, in my view, with a lot of intensity in recent times. Progressives strongly believe that a relatively small number of elitists in places like Washington, D.C., always acting in the common good, know what's better for all of us. And they're quite willing to use force to achieve that end. Underlying the progressive movement are three philosophical pillars, altruism, uh, collectivism, and egalitarianism. Altruism, collectivism, and egalitarianism. Altruism is not... Benevolence. Benevolence is a good thing. Benevolence is a very good thing. Altruism is otherism. It says everybody's important but you. Everybody's important but you. The problem with that, in the real world, there are only but yous. So if none of the but yous are important, individuals don't matter. And from a progressive perspective, individuals don't matter. It's the collective, the common good uh, that matters in their, their judgment. Um, as collectivists, um, they argue they're always acting in the common good, but the truth is their concept of the common good is an oxymoron. When the Founding Fathers got through with the Declaration of Independence and the uh, Bill of Rights uh, Constitution, they pretty much defined all the legitimate uh, common goods, freedom of speech, freedom of religion. When people talk about the common good today, they're usually talking about good for me and maybe not so good for you. Uh, good for the auto workers, maybe not so good for the manufacturers, good for the school teachers, maybe not so good for the students or the taxpayers, um, good for General Electric, maybe not so good for their competitors. And so what you've got going on in Washington, D.C. today is a battle over individual perceptions of what's good for them driving those outcomes. Um, in addition, 
if something was equally good for all of us, would we be arguing about it? I don't think so. Underlying the, the collectivist mentality is a progressive sense of justice. And your sense of justice largely drives your political position. And the progressive sense of justice is what I'm going to call radical egalitarianism. Now, to some degree, the United States is an egalitarian society. All men are created equal. When the founding fathers were talking about equal, they were talking about equal before the law. Just because you were the son of a baron didn't give you any special rights. When progressives talk about egalitarianism, they're talking about equal outcomes, equal outcomes. While it's true everybody should be equal before the law, it's true all human beings ought to be treated with dignity and respect simply because they're human beings. It's not true that everybody's equal. In fact, I have never met two equal people. Every person in this room is a unique, special individual. We all have different strengths, different weaknesses, different abilities, different goals. That's what makes human life so interesting. We're all special individuals, but we're not equal. At the extreme, Thomas Edison and the Boston Strangler are not equal. Um, the only way to get equal outcomes from unequal people is to use force and take what one person has earned and give it to somebody else that hadn't earned it. It could be money, but it can be lots of other things. I'll concretize that uh, for you with the story. Uh, tell you a little bit about where I went to school, what my age is. Uh, one of my heroes was Michael Jordan. I thought Michael Jordan was not only a great basketball player, I thought he was a real inspiration for poor kids. This will surprise you, but I am not as good a basketball player as Michael Jordan. There's a serious differential in performance. What's interesting is I can't possibly get to be as good a basketball player as Michael Jordan. Can't be done. I don't care how hard I tried, how hard you tried to help me. I can't get to be as good a basketball player as Michael Jordan. You cannot make the average great. You can make the average better. That may be a very productive, very noble thing to do, but you can't make the, the, the average great. However, you can make the great average. And egalitarians, by definition, are in the business of making the great average. It's very easy to make Michael Jordan as good a basketball player as me. You just cut his legs off, right? You say, well, we wouldn't do that. I don't know. We've been pretty tough on great people <clears throat> throughout the history of Western civilization. We you know, poisoned Socrates, imprisoned Galileo, burned Joan of Arc. We're more sophisticated today. We do it with lots of balls and chains, very high level of marginal taxes, very uh, uh, intense system of regulations. We put balls and chains on people. What many people fail to realize is that great people make a disproportionate contribution to human well-being. Everybody in this room, your children, your grandchildren, have a better life thanks to Thomas Edison. Edison not only invented the light bulb, he invented the research laboratory itself. Um, put balls and chains on great people and reduce the quality of life for all of us. Now, egalitarians, <coughs> progressive egalitarians, like to claim the moral high ground. And he that owns the moral high ground ends, wins the fight. This is really not a fight over economic theory. It's a fight over ethics. And he who owns a moral high ground wins the fight. And who can argue with everybody being equal? <clears throat> you know, I think what motivates egalitarians is the most destructive of all human emotions and watch it in yourself. It's called envy. Envy, which is the hatred of the good for being the good. And by the way, egalitarianism is a lot worse than I just described. Take any human attribute, intelligence, athletic ability, artistic ability. Half the people were above average and half the people were above, below average by definition. Um, the only way for everybody to be equal <laughs> is to reduce it to the lowest common denominator. Um, for example, and this is another story, I, when I, I grew up in a church, where the preacher wanted everybody to sing as loud as possible, except me. I have a really bad voice. I'm a really bad singer. Um, it would be tragic if everybody had to sing as poorly as I sing. Um, a lot of joy would go out of the, of the life, and I would be a big loser in that process. Now, when you front, uh, confront progressives, and I had the joy of uh, 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 debating with progressives over the years, They'll say, oh, we don't really mean to go that far. So here's a question. How far do they mean to go? We're not going to cut 
the legs off of Michael Jordan. We're just going to cut three toes off his left foot and one off his right foot. Now, here's the interesting question is who decides? Who decides how many toes are cut off of Michael Jordan's feet? That's when the power lusters, when the tyrants show up. Because they know exactly how many cut toes are cut off of Michael Jordan's foot. Always in the name of the common good. Always in the name of the common good. Well, then if, if you're debating a progressive, they say, well, we don't really mean that. What we really mean is equal opportunity, which is unfortunately the way presented by progressives is another oxymoron. Half the people are below average in intelligence. Half the people are born above average in intelligence. Half above average in athletic ability. Half below average in athletic ability. Half, you know, name it. Any human attribute, half above, half below. How does all that weigh out? Above average in intelligence, less than average in athletic ability, less than average in, in artistic ability. Where, where's, where's all that balance out? In addition, something that you see when you get my age, and I see some people in here probably in my age group, um, you see... Um, Siblings, brothers and sisters, who've been raised in the exact same family, same genetics, uh, went to the same school, same socioeconomic class, and have radically different outcomes. Radically different outcomes. Sometimes it's obvious that one outcome is better than another. Sometimes it's not really clear. You know, Joe has more money, but he has an alcohol abuse problem. Mary has less money, but she's a lot happier. You cannot judge those outcomes. Here's the fact. We're all unique, special individuals. They all have different strengths, different abilities, different goals, different objectives. You would expect different outcomes from people that have different attributes. That's what being an individual human being is about. I think the Founding Fathers had it right. It is equality before the law that matters. How about uh, those of us in the classical liberal tradition? Uh, what is our position? Uh, we are fundamentally, I am fundamentally an advocate of the concepts that I think made America great. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Each individual's unconditional right to their own life. Each individual's right to, to the pursuit of their personal happiness. Each individual's right to the product of their labor. If you produce a lot, you get a lot. If you think about that uh, ethics, it requires personal responsibility. It demands self-discipline. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. As classical liberals, and in my case, libertarians, we are primarily in the liberty business. We're mostly about liberty. Now, most people pay lip service to liberty, but we grasp that liberty is not just nice. It is nice. But it is essential for human well-being, both spiritually and physically, in the physical economic sense. In order to be productive, in order to be an innovative, an individual must be able to think for themselves. If somebody makes you act like two plus two is five, you literally cannot think. You cannot think. In addition, all human progress, by definition, is based on innovation and creativity. So in order for there to be progress, somebody has to do something which is better, which is different by definition. In order to be innovative and creative, you have to be an independent thinker. Somebody that thinks like the crowd cannot be innovative and not, can, cannot be creative. That's why entrepreneurs are so important. Entrepreneurs take the ideas of scientists and engineers and turn them into reality. Without entrepreneurship, there's literally no human progress. And what defines entrepreneurs? They are genuinely independent thinkers. Uh, they're experimenters. They fail a lot <laughs> and then sometimes succeed. For every Google, there are 10,000 failed Googles. For every Walmart, there's 100,000 failed Walmarts. Um, they see things that other people don't see. When I talk to college students, <clears throat> I hold up an iPhone and say, when I was in college, if somebody had shown me an iPhone and told me it's going to have all these capabilities in this little phone that it has today and I could buy it and almost anybody in this country could afford to buy it, I'd have said, that's crazy. 200 years, maybe, my lifetime, it's not going to happen. I don't know how Steve Jobs saw an iPhone. I don't know where that came from. That is the nature of entrepreneurship. 
And in order to be a successful entrepreneur, you have to be free. You have to have the liberty to pursue your ideas, to think out of the box, to experiment and fail. Um, communism and socialism are doomed to failure because they destroy innovation and creativity. Make a list of all the major innovations that came out of the Soviet Union or North Korea or, or uh, Cuba. It's a really short list. Make a list of all the innovations that have come out of the hundreds of thousands and millions, I guess, of government bureaucrats in the United States. It's a really short list. Entrepreneurship is essential for human progress, and entrepreneurship is only possible for a free, independent thinker. Liberty is essential for human physical well-being. It's also essential for human spiritual well-being in the context of the pursuit of happiness. When I talk about the pursuit of happiness, I'm not talking about having a good time on Friday night, although sometimes it's good to have a good time on Friday night. But I'm talking about happiness in the Aristotelian sense of a life well lived, blood, sweat, and tears happiness. When you're 80 years old, you look back and say, man, that was hard, and I'm glad I did it. Happiness in that context has to be earned. You cannot be entitled to be happy. You have to have a sense of purpose in your life. You have to have uh, strategy to accomplish that purpose, and you have to work to achieve that purpose consistent with your beliefs and your values. And you can only do that if you are a free person, if you have liberty. Um, so liberty is essential for physical well-being, but it's also essential for spiritual well-being. Um, when I talk about the pursuit of happiness, by the way, um, I believe that is a revolutionary idea in the Declaration of Independence. Before Jefferson, before the thinkers of the Enlightenment, everybody existed for somebody else's good. Good the king, good the state, good the church. Nobody existed for their own good. What Jefferson said is each one of us has a moral right to pursue our personal happiness. That idea created the most successful and the most benevolent society in human history. And I agree with Jefferson. Each of us has a moral right to pursue our personal happiness. Now, it's interesting to reflect a little deeper on the pursuit of happiness. Most people are okay with the pursuit of happiness. But if you think about it, wow, that is a selfish idea. I'm going out and pursue my happiness. How selfish can you be? And selfish is bad, right? I can uh, see uh, Johnny in the sandbox, three or four years old, playing with his truck, not bothering anybody. Along comes Fred. Fred would like to have Johnny's truck. Discussion, debate, argument ensues. Uh, mom, dad, son, a school teacher, kindergarten teacher gets involved in the argument. Mom says, hey, Johnny, give that truck to Fred. Don't be selfish. Don't be bad. Two great moral lessons being taught there in the sandbox. First, where did get Fred get the right to Johnny's truck? That's where our social welfare system comes from, right? That's where now Fred would like for Johnny to provide him with a Chevrolet Tahoe. Why not? Why not? But how about Johnny? See, I think that's the important lesson. And I suspect practically everybody, I would think actually everybody in here is Johnny. What did you learn in that sandbox? That for some reason you don't have a, a total right to your own life. For some reason you don't have the right to your own life. Let's talk about selfish a little more. Let's define it properly. It's acting in one's rational, long-term self-interest acting in one's rational, long-term self-interest. And the reason the definition is important, we have a uh, false dichotomy that's typically presented to us. And that false dichotomy is to take advantage of other people or self-sacrifice. Neither one make any sense. In fact, a lot of people think that taking advantage of other people is selfish. The irony is taking advantage of other people is not selfish, it's self-destructive. It's self-destructive in two ways. You might fool Tom, Dick, and Harry, but they're going to tell Betty, Eric, and William, and nobody's going to trust you. And if you're not trusted, you're certainly not going to be successful, and more importantly, you're not going to be happy. At a deeper level, while we all try to influence other people, I'm trying to influence you today. If you let go of reality and you try to manipulate somebody else's consciousness, you're going to do a whole lot more damage to your consciousness than you do to theirs. In my career, I've had the opportunity to meet a lot of successful people. I've never met anybody that was both successful and happy that got there taking advantage of other people. Now, I met some people make a lot of money, I think, got there taking advantage of other people. And they're the most unhappy people I ever met. Taking advantage of other people is not selfish, it's self-destructive. 
How about self-sacrifice? Now, that is the moral code of our society, right? We're all supposed to self-sacrifice. You hear that at home, you hear it at church, you hear it at school, you hear it in the media, we're all supposed to self-sacrifice. Um, I want to ask you to ask yourself what I believe is the most important question you can ask yourself. And for those of you that have children and grandchildren, in particularly, ask yourself honestly how you'd like your children or grandchildren to answer this question. Do you have as much right to your life as anybody else has to their life? Do you have as much right to your life as anybody else has to their life? Of course you do. Of course you do. Why would you believe anything different than that? And by the way, if you're unwilling to defend your right to your life, you can't defend anybody else's right to their life. If I don't have a right to my life, and I don't have a right to my life, and I don't have a right to my life, and I don't have a right to my life, and I don't have a right to my life, if I don't have a right to my life, if none of the eyes have a right to their life, nobody has a right to their life. And that is exactly, again, when the tyrants show up. Because they know exactly how to use your life for their perception of the common good. So in order to defend individual rights, to defend anybody's right to their life, you have to start with being willing to defend your right to your life. And of course, if you believe you have a right to your life, you should respect other people's right to their life. So as, I don't, as long as I don't use force or fraud to take what you've earned, and you don't use force or fraud to take what I've earned, we should respect each other's right to our own lives, to the personal pursuit of our, our happiness. Um, take advantage of other people and self-sacrifice, neither one work. But there is a rigorous, demanding moral code that underlies free societies. It's also the foundation for organizational success and maybe most importantly, personal happiness. We're fundamentally traders. We trade value for value. Life is about figuring out how to get better together. When I was running BB&T, we had a gut-level commitment to help our clients achieve economic success and financial security, and we expected to make a profit doing it. Life is about figuring out how to get better together. There are only two stable relationship conditions, win-win and lose-lose. Whenever you get greedy and you set up a win-lose, your partner, your spouse will get bitter and you end up in a lose-lose relationship. Interestingly enough, any time you get self-sacrificial and you set up a lose-win relationship, you'll get better and you end up in a lose-lose relationship. So in any meaningful relationship in your life, you should ask, what's in it for me? That's a fair question. But you should also ask, what's in it for them? Because if there's nothing in it for them, at the end of the day, there'll be nothing in it for you. And of course, it's in your rational self-interest to help the people you care about, your family, your friends, the people you work with. Uh, if you love your children, helping your children is not really a sacrifice. Uh, in fact, love is the ultimate expression of selfishness. Now, most people don't think that way, but I use this example with college students. You're getting ready to get married, big event in your life. Your future spouse comes up to you and says, honey, I'm so excited about marrying you. This is the biggest self-sacrifice I've ever made. <laughs> not exactly what you wanted to hear, right? Um, if you really love somebody, you would risk your life to protect them. I would hate to have this choice, but if I had a choice between my life and one of my children's life, I'd choose to die because I couldn't live with myself if I'd made a different choice. Love is selfish in that context. I believe it's in my rational self-interest to support the United Way. The United Way is an umbrella charity organization that does a lot of good in the community in which I live. I wouldn't want to live in that community if there were no United Way, and I wouldn't want my children to live in that community. In fact, I support a number of nonprofit charitable organizations, a substantial number. But I think there's a difference in kind in me choosing to do that, to give my money that I've earned away for purposes that I agree with, versus the government using a gun to take my money for whatever their purposes happen to be. Um, what would be required for you to act in your rational self-interest? First thing I think you would have to do is hold what I call the context. Sometimes people talk about being selfish. Uh, they're talking about people that have a, a focus, a self-focus. They kind of have tunnel vision. And the irony is that's not in your rational self-interest because the rest of the world matters, right? You have to hold the context. You have to ha ask your question, what kind of world would you like to live in? And what would you enjoy doing, maybe nudging the world a little bit in that direction? You'd have a sense of purpose, making the world a better place to live, doing something you would enjoy doing, pushing the world in that direction. You'd be a purpose-driven individual. 
Secondly, you would take care of your body. You'd eat right, you'd exercise well. Thirdly, you'd take care of your mind, you'd read, study, think. You'd work hard to create healthy relationships with other human beings, particularly those that shared your values, because human relationships matter. And you'd have a rational value system. But if everybody had a sense of purpose, did the best they could to take care of their body, did the best they could to take care of their mind, worked hard to create healthy human relationships, and had a rational value system. What if everybody acted in their rational self-interest? I believe a huge percentage of the world's problems would go away. You constantly hear that the problem with the world's people are selfish. And when, people, when they say that, what they're really talking about is people kind of acting what I'd call randomly <laughs> and doing what, what, what serves their short-term goals without really reflecting on what it's required for a good long-term life. And, uh, you know, I had a brother-in-law, drank 24 beers a day, got cirrhosis a bit of the river, drank 24 beers and died. People say he was selfish. No, he was self-destructive. Ernie Madoff, the guy that stole hundreds of millions of dollars from his family and friends, Madoff said the best day in his life is when he got caught. Can you imagine spending 20 years stealing from your family and friends? That's not selfish, and that's, that's self-destructive. In order to defend a free society, you must begin by first defending your unequivocal right to the pursuit of your personal happiness, as long as you don't violate anybody else's rights. And if you're not willing to take that position, frankly, you can't defend a free society, and you can't uh, defend uh, individual liberty. You have to begin with saying, hey, I have a right to my life as long as I don't violate other people's rights, and the same goes for them. That is the foundation for a free and prosperous society. Um, share with you one story that kind of integrates some of this stuff, and I'm going to close with thought on selfish. Um, for, from the time that men human beings evolved 250,000 years ago until the early 1700s, human life expectancy remained the same. There was basically no material progress in human life expectancy. Now, something happened in the 1700s or 1600s that transformed the quality of life on this planet, transformed life expectancy. It's a curve that's just flat for hundreds of thousands of years and this does this, first in Western civilization and now throughout the world. It was called the Enlightenment. It was the age of reason, science, technology, individual rights, rule of law, free markets, something called capitalism. Capitalism transformed the quality of life on this planet. It was the first system that allowed people the individual freedom to pursue their truths, to experiment, to fail. Uh, and it didn't matter what your social status was. And it was the first system that rewarded those that contributed the most for their contribution. But what's interesting about capitalism, it's not natural. Naturally, for hundreds of thousands of years, human beings were tribal, brutal, poor beings. Capitalism was an invention of the human mind. It has to be defended. It has to be protected. It cannot be taken for granted. And it is a system that allows people to pursue their own personal happiness. One last thought about happiness. Um, happiness is the end of the game, isn't it right? I mean, happiness in that Aristotelian sense of a life well lived. Sometimes business people think uh, money's the end of the game. Nothing wrong with money, money's a good thing, but it's not an end, it can be a means to an end. Happiness is the end of the game. And the foundation for genuine happiness is genuine self-esteem, not the stuff they peddle in the schools, genuine self-esteem. And genuine self-esteem has to be earned, just like happiness has to be earned. But the single biggest driver of your self-esteem is your work. You spend a disproportionate amount of time, effort, and energy at work. Uh, and I use work in the broadest context, raising children, very hard, very productive work. Whatever your, product, whatever your work is, what makes it important is it drives your self-esteem. Something I said many times to the employees of BB&T, it's very important to BB&T that you do your job well, but it's far, far more important to you. Might fool me about how well you do your job, might fool your boss how well you do your job, but you'll never fool you. If you don't do your work the best you can do it, give me a level of skill, give me a level of knowledge, you can't do the impossible. But if you don't do your work the best you can possibly do it, you will lower your self-esteem. 
Now, here's the good news. The flip's also true. Do your work the best you can possibly do it. Give them your level of skill. Give them your level of knowledge. And you will raise your self-esteem, which is more important than whether you get a promotion or more money. It's about your fundamental character, who you are as a human being. Um, there's a significant, I think, social implication to that. Uh, take a, uh, a construction worker, bricklayer. He has a tough, hard, demanding life. My granddad had that kind of life. This bricklayer has a tough, hard, grinding life, but he and his, his wife successfully raise their children. Maybe his granddaughter becomes CEO of a publicly traded company, maybe not. He has a tough life, but he gets something very precious from his work. He gets to be proud of himself. He gets self-esteem. Take that same bricklayer and give him welfare. He may be better off financially, but he loses part of his soul. He loses his self-esteem. There's a lot of conversation here in D.C. about security. Uh, almost all of it has nothing to do with economic reality, but it's an interesting conversation. But even if it had something to do with economic reality, it's not on mission. Americans care about security, but this is not the land of security. People didn't get on a boat and come to Jamestown to be secure. The United States is a land of opportunity. The opportunity to be great, the opportunity to fail and try again. But most importantly, the opportunity of that bricklayer to live life on his own terms, to pursue his personal happiness based on his beliefs and his values, to pursue his personal happiness as a free and independent person. That's why people came to America. That's what made America great. It's a unique in human history sense of life that it's very important for us to protect. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, we have time for uh, one new question. I uh, will, will uh, uh, some of the panel, and then we have a gentleman bringing a mic around. And if you could introduce or say your name and your institutional affiliation, I would appreciate it. Um, hi there, my name is Helen. I, I'm at the Heritage Foundation interning in the Asian Studies Center. My question um, is, well, you said he who owns the moral high ground has the advantage. And I wonder if this is true, then why does libertarianism as a political philosophy totally dispense with a coherent moral system? Some libertarians. <laughs> I don't think libertarianism as a, as a political philosophy does. Uh, I think some libertarians do. Um, I think what the position that some libertarians take is that you have to begin kind of with politics, the idea that um, you, you have the right to your own life and, and the government is not supposed to interfere and take away your right to your own life. It's just to protect individual rights. Some of us libertarians, I personally am an objectivist, we do think there's a moral foundation for capitalism, and I think, and we think, I personally think it's very important. I don't think you could begin with politics. You have to begin with metaphysics, your view of, of reality. You have to begin with um, epistemology, how how do how do human beings think, and then you have to get to ethics. So I think you have to start with metaphysics, physics, to defend capitalism. And I think that's one of the weaknesses in some, in some of the libertarian movement. Not all libertarians is that they really don't want to go and think about these deeper issues. So I, you know, I think that ethics comes before politics. And I think the founding fathers got that. I think, you know, really they always acted ethically, you can always, you know, they got clay feet, but the, the, in a broad context, they were trying to uh, build an ethical society. Um, now, how you derive your ethics, in my case, I, I derive my ethics from nature. I think that we have to be consistent with the laws of nature and man's nature. And rationality is, is the foundation for human survival and success. And rationality requires freedom. You can't literally can't think if somebody makes you do something different than you, what you think is right. So what makes capitalism and liberty work is man's basic nature as a thinking being. We're not bees. <laughs> we're, we're, and and that, that requires liberty. It requires the freedom for, for you to think and pursue your own ideas. And for you to argue with me and change my mind and me to argue with you and change your mind, you know, that all that whole process 
is only possible in a free society, but only necessary because human beings are rational beings. If we were bees, bees don't, you know, they just do what the queen says or whatever bees do. Dr. Allison, thank you very much for being here. And uh, I know President Trump, I believe, it considered you as a uh, candidate for a Federal Reserve uh, director, and I hope that would still happen because I know you understand the constitutional monetary issue. And you mentioned the, the circumstance of the bricklayer. And for him to preserve his wealth, it was necessary to have an honest monetary unit. And it seems our country has digressed from that and created central banking, for which there's no constitutional basis. I do have a, a gift for you, a book uh, titled A History of Central Banking by Stephen Goodson. And in the context of which I had uh, recommended this book to the Monetary Policy Group at Cato Institute. And uh, merely for recommending the book, I was actually banned from attending their monetary policy conferences here after I've attended the last five years and asked questions uh, of you and others there. And, and um, yes, well, with institutes like this and Cato, uh, freedom of information, conversation, is the banning of books appropriate? No, I don't, I, mean, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know what the whole story is, so I don't really know how to respond to that. Okay. But banning books is not good. <laughs> I'm Bob Hershey. I'm an independent consultant. Uh, as an objectivist, how can one work with other people in an objective manner to get an economic consensus for things that you want to fund? For instance, uh, some of the uh, groups that help people. Well, it depends on what you're talking about. If you're just talking about charity, I, I believe there's a very important role for charity, as I described. And, and I think that I benefit from the things that I support financially, whether it be United Way on one one uh, arm or the Cato Institute on another arm. I suppose both those kind of institutions. So I think there is a very important role for charity. But I do think, as I said, it's a difference in kind, uh, me choosing to support these organizations and somebody taking a gun, taking my money and spending on things that I might not agree with. So I think in terms of business, you know, it's, it's ironic Almost all the examples they've used of market failure turns out that they they weren't market failure. The classic case is they said the argument that you had to have government to build lighthouses because who's going to pay for the lighthouse? You know, because the only one I'm only going to get to use a lot of other. But turns out there was no problem building lighthouses because everybody that had ships wanted to build lighthouses. You didn't have government. I have a farm up in the mountains of North Carolina, and we have a volunteer fire department. I give money to the volunteer fire department, whether my neighbor does or not, because I don't want my house to burn down. And, and so all these arguments for failure where markets can't solve problems, it turns out if you go back in history, or if you just look at a lot of things today, they just simply aren't true. Uh, it's just it's not how markets work. If it's my advantage, the fact that you may be a free rider is not going to bother me because I'm not going to let my house burn down, right? Thank you. Madeline Alexander, Institute for Academic Management. My question to you is, um, what do you believe your, the role of government is in education in this country, especially as it pertains to, you talked about welfare, and then so looking at it from both an academic perspective for those that can and a vocational perspective for those that are not so academically mind at the beginning of their, their journey? And that's a great question. I think in a certain way, from a practical perspective, it's a, it's a fundamental question. I strongly believe in the privatization of education. And, and I'll do that for a couple of reasons. First, um, what has allowed so much progress in business has been innovation creativity. And part of the motivator is the upside, but part of the motivator is the downside. If you run a business poorly, you get to fail. If you want an education system poorly, you just get more money. You've got an inverted incentive. <laughs> and interesting enough, and not surprisingly enough, the victims of public education are low-income people. Of course, because they don't have the political power. So I think the biggest enemy of low-income people in the United States is, is public education. I would myself support vouchers and tax credits to parents and students 
and let them, and I think the market would, you know, would some people make mistakes? Yeah, but would all the people make, no, people figured out how to go to Walmart, right? You know, Walmart's had a huge improvement in quality and the, <laughs> of costs for poor people in the United States. And I think there would, I think there would be Sam Waltons and Bill Gates and Steve Jobs out there that would revolutionize education and we'd be stunned. You know what interests me? I'm, I'm in a university now, so I'm teaching some. And then I, I, I have some, some friends of mine that have kids in the elementary school and stuff. They're basically doing the same thing they did when I went there in the 1950s and 60s. I mean, there's been so little innovation, it's kind of stunning. You know, if you look around at everything else, there's huge innovation because it's of necessity because you get to die and get to go out of business. So I think the single most important thing we could do would be privatized education, subsidize poor students, uh, poor kids, subsidize uh, 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 families uh, and, and parents, but don't subsidize the schools. And I think you'd see a radical improvement in education. Very, you see, you see a lot of experiments. A few of them wouldn't work, but they're almost always better in public education. And then you'd see a, a Walmart or an Apple or somebody emerge and develop a much better model. So I'm an advocate of the privatization of education and then subsidize poor people. I have a question. I know you've been doing a lot of traveling and speaking at universities. And uh, <clears throat> what have you found is the most effective way to communicate young people the importance of a free society and moral uh, superiority of free enterprise over socialism or other government control of the economy? Well, what, what I find, and this is very, should concern all of us that believe in a free society, most of these students, and these are, I often talk to seniors, sometimes graduates, mostly juniors and seniors in college, have never heard about the basic ideas that underline a free society. It's, it's kind of stunning in a way. And part of what I'm trying to do is get them energized to think about the contrast in the extremes, the, the progressive movement, the classical liberal movement. And then I try to get them to read books. Um, I wrote a book on leadership that I think is effective for students, is oriented towards students. I have other books. Because in one lecture, you're not you're only going to move the needle an inch. But if you talk to 150 kids, I found that maybe 15 or 20 are interested enough to read a book, and then maybe they get involved in the process. But it's a tough uphill fight because the government owns the schools, right? <laughs> like, and this is an indoctrination issue. Maybe it even transcends the critical thinking issue. And they've indoctrinated so many of these students. I've been interested in, um, and it's not surprising to me, the college-educated females vote very differently than, than uh, uh, white males that haven't gone to college. And I think it's a lot of it's because they get indoctrinated. They take liberal arts courses. They don't even take business courses. They don't take economics courses. And they get indoctrinated in a series of beliefs. And they can't make a connection to, to that to economic reality because they've never taken an economics course or they don't understand how markets work or business works. So I think it's an interesting process. Now, what I'd like to do would be transform the university, but that's a difficult thing to do. As you and I were talking, one of the real tasks we have now is, except for maybe a Hillsdale, there aren't any private universities left in the United States because I'm, I'm at Wake Forest University, and the percentage of revenues that Wake gets from grants and, and uh, from student aid is probably, I don't know, I'm guessing here, 50, 60% of their revenues. Well, who's going to tell the government <laughs> no when you get 60% of your revenues from the government? And that is scary. So that, so that ideas tend to get concentrated. You even see this in science now, because almost a huge percentage of research is funded by the federal government. So what are they going to do? They're going to research things that the federal government wants to hear. I think there's a big problem in the environmental issue. I'm, I'm not sure about global warming. I don't know the answer to that. But I know that the research is not balanced. Because if you go out and say there's no global warming, or that maybe you might say there's global warming, but it's not a big problem or something, you're, you're done. No more money from the federal government. So you have this bias in research that makes it hard to judge. Maybe it's a giant problem. Or maybe there's this massive incentive on one side of the coin. They talk about corporations. Corporations give about this much <laughs> compared to the federal government. Uh, even medical care. 
what are they, what, are they, what diseases do they pursue? Not necessarily the ones that we would rationally pursue. They're the ones that are politically correct at the moment. And, and so I think it's a really big problem the government ownership to the educational system, and I just think we just keep hammering at it. I don't have a simple solution. I mean, no, there's no easy answer because we're outnumbered and they're indoctrinated. <laughs> all, all I hope you can do is plant a seed. Plant a seed. So going to the education thing, I mean, at the beginning, you kind of outlined a pretty strict version of libertarianism with the courts, the police, and the military. How does education fit into that? And I guess, if you don't mind, I'd throw a second question in there. Is how do you, what do you think about the veil of ignorance from Rawls, where uh, we have to look, it is moral or ethical to consider things uh, as we would, as if we were souls, and before we were born, I mean, what kind of risks we would be willing to take would be would we be willing to take the risk we might end up with a very high IQ or be born in Africa or, you know, there's all sorts of risks that we might ensure with a free market, but we can't because we haven't even been born yet? Um, well, those are two different educated questions. <laughs> um, in terms of a lot of libertarians would not support the idea of subsidizing education. They would be for private advertising education. I do support the idea because I do think We've got a history of government interference in education that's created a lot of disadvantages. I think a lot of the poor people in the United States would be much better off if we never had a public education system. They would have figured out the problem. I think the public education has really put balls and chains on a lot of students. And I think we have to undo that history. Maybe 10, 20, maybe more like 30 or 40 years down the road, then we get rid of the subsidies. And just let people give money to kids. I mean, I would support, I'd give a lot of money to charity. I'd be glad to give money to help. In fact, that'd be really fun if you could do it in a productive way. I don't want to do it to give them to go to public schools. So I think they're learning the long ideas. So I think that in the short term, you subsidize low-income kids to make up for what I think has been a terrible abuse of low-income kids. And then in the long term, you get rid of that and you get charity, charity to do that. And I think it would do it. And I don't think there'd be that many poor people, by the way. I think in a true free market society, the percentage of people that would really be poor is very small. Uh, to your second question, I think Rawls is crazy. I mean, <laughs> he's saying that, I mean, we all are in that draw anyway, aren't we? I mean, what, what's, he, what's his point? <laughs> I don't get it. I don't, I, we're all, we all drew what we drew. And, and how does it all, you know, yeah, am I supposed to not enjoy my life because somebody else didn't get as good a draw as I did? What does that mean? How's that going to make that other person happier? I don't get it. I don't, I don't think that's ethical. I think it's unethical, actually. I think it's pretty daggum evil. That's when Joseph Stalin walks into the room. That's how that always ends, right? It always ends with Joseph Stalin in a room. My name is Brendan O'Connell, and I'm with the Florida Bar. My question is, what do you think cultural change in the country will do to capitalism? And what I have reference to is the decline of the family, the $9 billion a year that has to be spent in universities on remedial education, and our recent report about the decline in our life expectancy and our horrendous debt that no one in Washington will talk about and no one in Washington will, they, they will throw money at the decline in the family, but nobody will talk about the root cause to change our culture back to what it was perhaps in the 50s. I think you have a great point, and I would, I would say I'm very concerned on one hand. On the other hand, and I think this is a balancing act, and I, I have to admit one day I feel one way, one day the next, but if you, Cato has a website called humanprogress.org that looks at human well-being from as long as you have records. Everything that matters on the planet, not necessarily in the United States, is better than it's ever been in human history. Human life expectancy is way improved. Income is way improved. 
Every day, 100,000 people get raised out of, profit, uh, out of poverty, primarily by free markets and free, free trade. Um, and so there is whopping improvement. And a lot of it is because societies hadn't got there, but places like China and India at least have moved towards freer societies and they're getting, to, and there's billions of people that are getting better off. Now, my own view is the United States is at least plateaued. I mean, we're improving in some ways because of this cultural issue. So I think there is a challenge, and I think it's a non-trivial challenge to restore, and I view it in a philosophical terms. I think the culture was based on certain basic ideas. Individual rights, personal responsibility, those kind of ideas, I think that's the real threat, is those ideas are, are under attack. Because I, now, I, you know, nobody's responsible for themselves, right? When anything happens, I'm a victim. Everybody's a victim, right? I'm a victim because I'm, you know, female. I'm a victim because I was born, you know, wherever. And and I think that is really dangerous. And, uh, when, when I was at BB&T, we had a, a, a poster up on the wall that said, if, if it's to be, it's up to me. We had a guy climbing the wall. And that is that idea is under attack, that, that whole sense of personal responsibility. So I... On one hand, I'm very concerned because I think the culture issues are, are significant. And I, and I think that capitalism, free markets, liberty are all very intangibles and they can go away. They're not natural. They're not natural to human history. Now, on the other hand, some of those ideas are actually finally getting disseminated, uh, disseminated in the rest of the world. And so you're seeing this big improvement in human progress. But you can go for a long time. You know, human beings have gone for thousands of years when things actually got worse. So it's a, it's a fight. That's why I'm here. That's why I go on college campuses uh, and, and talk about these ideas. But uh, so kind of basic principles, honesty, integrity, personal responsibility, are foundational society. They make free markets work. If you lose those principles, and the more force you have, the more government acts, the less responsible people become because they have less control of their lives. And I think that's very dangerous. So I think there is actually a correlation with the expansion of government and the decline of the cultural issues you're talking about. I think they're tied together. I think they have a role in it. They're not the only cause of it. They're not the only cause. There are other, I mean, I think, to the degree that they fund the education system, and the education system has contributed, I think, materially in that decline, then yes. I mean, um, I'm not a particularly religious person, but when they took religion out of the schools, they took ethics out of the schools. And you can't take ethics. <laughs> There's some things you don't have to be, you know, honesty, integrity, those kind of beliefs aren't just based on religions or, or any particular religion. And they made a terrible mistake, but this is the problem with it being the government school system. Because there were areas where people didn't agree on the ethics. They just said, well, we're just not going to teach ethics. But ethics is more important than 99.9% of the stuff they teach. So, you know, the demise of ethics in the educational system contributed. It's not the only factor. So lots of this other stuff that you're talking about, in my view. And I think you've got to restore... And that's why in a private education system, you teach the ethics and you get the outcomes. <laughs> and kids will be more successful because they've learned the ethical principles. And parents will say, well, you know, maybe I ought to send my kid to that school. That's how they chose Walmart, right? It's the same basic idea. So the lack of a market for education, I think, has been a material contributor to the climate culture issues you're talking about. Um, Adele Hartswick, I was just wondering if you had an opinion on um, the debate in Randian circles between open and closed objectivism. Oh, <laughs> I try not to get into that debate. <laughs> it seems silly to me. I'm for, I, I, there, there, to me, there are two things. There's what Rand said, which is objectivism, because that's, that's a philosophy. I think that any philosophy has to evolve to some degree, reflecting more knowledge. And also, Rand didn't cover everything, you know, with law and that kind of stuff. So I'm not for, you know, I, don't, I think some people say that they agree with Rand's basic beliefs and don't. And I think that's unfair to Rand and philosophy. On the other hand, that the, the idea that people extend some of these beliefs or look for holes, you know, not holes in the, I, 
in the basics, but there's a lot of stuff to be done. I think that's good. So I'm, I'm kind of between the two. I'm not a, <laughs> I, objectivism is a philosophy. It is not a religion. And I think that's what's dangerous. I think a lot of objectivists take it as a, you know, as kind of a hardwired belief versus a process of thinking. I mean, it's really about people using their reason. And that, I think, is unconditional. But that's going to lead you in a lot of different directions, in my view. Thank you very much for coming. This concludes our event. Thank you all. Thank <laughs> you.